0: Let us pray for the Lord's illumination. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this reminder through Moses, Lord, of your salvation and your providence. And we pray in the same way that the Holy Spirit inspired the writing of these words. May it go forth to search our hearts, to test us, to know the depths of our hearts, and to renew us in our faith guide us and lead us lord we ask this in the matchless name of Christ Jesus our lord and savior amen last week uh, brother gamlang had actually done uh, exodus chapter 2 uh, and exodus chapter 2 if you recall is the saving of moses uh, who's given this name as a, a child who has been saved uh, from the river uh, and how Moses, through the help of his sister uh, and through the family, is somehow being used to redeem the entire family. The season of Lent, as we work towards uh, Good Friday and eventually Easter, uh, the theme is this redemption as a, uh, as a family, how the family is redeemed uh, through these acts of grace. And today we're talking about God's provision for deliverance, how He will deliver his entire people. Uh, I recall during the sermon, I'm not sure if you were here, Giam Liang was uh, kind of looking at me and saying, are you going to cover chapter 3, 4, 5, 6? And I said, no, unfortunately, according to the reading plan, we jump straight ahead to uh, uh, Exodus chapter 5 and 6, or the end of chapter 5 and 6. So, I kind of need to give you an idea of what happens. Uh, In chapter 2, it begins as the story about how Moses is saved. And in chapter 3, you recall that he's already uh, with the Midianites. He gets married to Zipporah. He disappears for another 40 years. So in total, he's had 40 years in Egypt and 40 years in Midian desert territory. He's grown to be a successful shepherd. And then one day, while he's walking out in the desert taking care of the sheep, he encounters the burning bush. We find that in uh, Exodus chapter 3. And what happens in the bush is Jesus, uh, Moses is called and he says, take off your sandals for the ground on which you're standing on is holy. And God gives his name. It is I am that I am. Uh, in the Hebrew uh, understanding of it, it's the tetragamaton. yod he Waw he Yahweh. It's a breathable, it's all a yod he, wo he. Uh, It's almost like the breath of God, Uh, it's words that go out and from this burning bush, which Moses in the busyness of his uh, life gets turned around and uh, he actually focuses his attention in his present, and God sends him to say, I've heard the prayers of my people, go and confront Pharaoh. And Moses uh, goes, uh, in in a Malaysian colloquial way of doing this, Moses goes, Alama, (laughs) Uh, how? How am I supposed to do this? Who do I say sent me? Uh, You know, Pharaoh, big guy, most advanced army, most powerful man in that whole ancient Near East culture. How am I going to do this? And Yahweh tells him and says, I will be with you. That's it. I will be with you. And he takes his staff, throws it down, and he turns into a snake, puts his hand in his, uh, in his robe, he comes out white, it, proving to Moses that this is really the real deal. God is sending him. The story continues, and uh, pretty much what happens after that uh, begins this period where Moses now comes before Pharaoh together with Aaron now I want to to repeat this because in Genesis chapter 3 there are three things that are stated one that God is Yahweh I am that I am the all self-sufficient one and he also says I am the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob I am not I was I am meaning that he still is, they still exist. And the third one is that I have heard the cries of my people and I will come and save them. Therefore, Moses, this is your plan. Go and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. That's in Genesis chapter 3. Abraham's uh, sorry. Moses' response is, um, I don't know what to say I'm faltering lips you know, I stutter not so much stutter but I have of uncircumcised lips in a way kind of like can you choose somebody else not me but nonetheless uh, God kind of scolds him and he goes he confronts uh, Pharaoh and uh, Pharaoh and his advisors kind of laugh him off and tell him to go away And in the first attempt, basically uh, gets tremendous failure. If I may say this again, he goes and he flops. Now put yourself in Moses' shoes, right? For 80 years, you've been out there trying to figure out what is my purpose in life. I thought I was a prince of Egypt. I've gone in and I've realized now that I'm a nobody and all I can do is take care of sheep. And God suddenly knocks on my door and says, go and do this great phenomenal thing. Save my people. And in spite of all the things that he says, Moses says, I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do this. He goes, and true enough, he can't do it. He confronts Pharaoh. Pharaoh kind of laughs him down and he goes packing away. But not only that, something worse happens. You see, after he confronts Pharaoh, Pharaoh thinks about this and he says to his people, well, these Israelites are a bit too much. He tells them, you are no longer, he tells the uh, supervisors, or rather the uh, Egyptian masters, you are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before, don't reduce the quota. So this is in uh, chapter 5. Okay? You can follow it in the text. I know if you can't read the, the font there, you can read it in your Bible. Then, Moses says, they are lazy. That is why they are crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. So you can imagine the mockery in his voice. Make the work harder, harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to, To these lies they pay no attention to these lies now we know on hindsight moses is speaking the truth but pharaoh has a different kind of truth and in these two worlds that are colliding one will want to overwhelm the other so much so that you are too busy and too discouraged and broken-hearted that you will not listen uh, let me first ask this question of application or bridging. How many of us in our lives are like this? You have God as master, but you also have a master out there who say, these Christians are too lazy. Let me work, make them work harder. They come on Sunday, they sing songs, they go to McCallum as if they are so free They go on all these mission trips as if they, uh, you know, got so much time. Let me make life harder. Make it so much harder. And true enough, some friends come to me and say, my work is so hard, I have no time for the family. I have no time for the church. You know, I know the church wants to do all these wonderful things. Now I give money. But I personally don't have time for this. Keep them working so that they pay no attention to these lies. Which truth will you listen to in this current world? In verse 20, uh, you see, after, after this happens, right, the, uh, the Egyptian masters go out. So I've just shown you verse 7. Now, uh, proceeding on from that, the Egyptian masters go and they tell the supervisors, they whip them They make life really hard. So the supervisors come back and say, Pharaoh, why are you doing this? You know, you you tell us to make bricks, but you don't give us a straw. This is your own people's fault. And then Pharaoh tells them, no, this is Moses. (laughs) Because Moses is the one who triggered this, that's why you are getting this. You guys got nothing better to do, I'll make life harder for you. And so when the supervisors left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And verse 21 says, they said, May the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious, stinky, smelly, terrible, dead to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Now let me be quite clear about this. In the process of doing what is right, in the process of doing what is just, trouble will come. And it will make things harder. You don't believe me, you look at people that have disappeared recently. I don't know how many of you know very much. You would have heard Pastor Raymond Koh, but what about the others? Heal me, heal me no. Okay. Do you realize that irrespective of whether they are uh, Christian or not, these people who have disappeared were doing social work. They were caring for the poor. They were doing things which their own people were not doing for them. They were bringing food, they were bringing encouragement, and they were helping them. And for that reason, because others disagreed with what they were doing, they decided to get rid of them. And so, in the sermon outline, if you want to check, uh, it, it, it's something there that you can write later on. Now, verse 22 uh, continues, Moses returned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord? Why? Have you brought trouble on these people? Menusahkan. In Cantonese, we say this, ma oh, maaf. But, much stronger than that. You have brought trouble, distress, calamity, catastrophe. Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on these people. Not, not just trouble, uh, they've already been in trouble. They're enslaved. This is worse than slavery. And you have not rescued your people at all. Okay, here's Moses, right? The giver of the law. He challenges the character of God. You are lying to me. You have not rescued your people. You said you would. Is this how you're going to rescue them? uh, Make life worse. Now, Moses has not yet come to encounter God in the fullness of the great I Am. And so the way he looks at it is, this is an amazing disaster. I have come, according to this God who sends me, who is the great I am, who appeared out of the bush. I have come and I have told these authorities, the Pharaoh, what he told me to do. And things are even worse than it was before. At least before, we had straw. Now, no no change in quota. They have to go and get straw themselves. Things are worse. There is trouble, distress, affliction, calamity. And if you put yourself in the foot of Moses, I'm the leader, I'm trying to save them, but I have just made things worse. Much, much worse. And so he cries out to God. And God can take it. It's not so puny and small that you say, How dare you? God takes it. But let me first make this uh, particular point. In your sermon outline, you find inserted in your bulletin, there are blanks to be filled up. This process of deliverance, in this case, comes at the cost of greater trouble and distress. Greater trouble and distress. How many of you have actually ever really thought about this? That although we seek to have a better life for us, quite often the path of doing what is right and good results in greater trouble and distress. I remember once when I was a child, somewhere in the age of eight or nine, one day in the afternoon, a one ton lorry came and parked in front of our house. And it was exuding this most wonderful smell. It was filled with durians. And I was like, wow, heaven. <laughs> Lorry in front of the house with durian. I called my mom, 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 mom. durian. Why is he stopping in front of our house? <laughs> and so we were kind of perplexed. I mean, we're in a taman. We're not in a market or anything and we went to find out and the guy came to the gate knocking on the gate and he says seeking to my mom, which I didn't understand because uh, they were talking in some dialect and eventually my mom said oh, this man gave durian for us and I'm like almost pengsan, almost fainted <laughs> one lorry load of durian what are we going to do with this? So I'm like very excited. And then my mom goes in and calls my dad. There's a very rapid fire uh, discussion. And the durians disappear. <laughs> and I thought, what is wrong with my dad? Why is he saying, take this durian away? another day same thing happened in the afternoon not long after big hamper (laughs) comes to the gate knocking at the gate bringing a big hamper again same thing happened i'm all excited wow hamper very nice very pretty taller than me (laughs) conversation between my mom and my dad (laughs) and the hamper disappears again and i'm thinking there has to be a very weird pattern. Anytime my dad comes into the picture, it is a killjoy. <laughs> I grew up in my primary school wondering, why is it that we never go out for dinners? Other of my friends would go around socialising and we would have so, you know, they would come and tell me they went this party, they win that party, went to this thing. My dad, boring. <laughs> Never went out, never socialized. I always wondered why, and I grew up very much part of my life trying to figure out what is wrong with my dad. Was he such an introvert? It was only much later in my life I realized that because of my dad's profession, he was always subject to bribery. Some of you might be wondering what he is, so let me just end your suspense. (laughs) My dad worked with the judiciary. He he, he was a judge, uh, quite a senior judge. I won't say, if not, means people will start checking which judge is he. (laughs) But he was with the judiciary, and and many, many years later, when I asked him about this, he said, the people who were sending the durians, the hampers, and all that, they were people who had cases whom he was supposed to sit over. And they were trying to curry favour. Then I say, what about your, you know, you never went for all these uh, dinners and all that stuff. He says, uh, as a judge, I have to remain outside of community and society so that I am not influenced. I mean, that was the old ethos. Nowadays, you see our judges, um, yeah, party animals sometimes. Don't go and say that too far because I'll go into jail. (laughs) But I know some of, uh, I, I met some of them before in the past. And so in the past, you remain objective, independent, not influenced. But can you imagine the amount of trouble and distress your child is giving you grief because he doesn't have his durian, he doesn't have his hampers, he doesn't have a social life. It is harder to do the right thing. In my counselling with uh, youths, in, with children, teenagers, and some of them will come and complain, "My father never let me do this. My mother let me do this. They always fight with me. They don't let me have a life." I have to calmly sit them down and say, "Do you know that it is so much easier to not fight with you and give you what you want?" But what will that mean? It means a life without boundaries. It means a life without purpose where you just do what you want. And when it comes to doing what is necessary and going through the pain and suffering, you will not do it because it is easier to do the easier thing. We are now faced in an environment where quick and easy gratification is really hard and parents are having to deal with it if you don't believe me look at many of our children now as soon as they sit at the dinner table the handphone comes out in front of their child because it is harder to discipline the child than it is to let them do what they want now this is no way a condemnation of parents but this is a challenge to us as the parents when it comes to delivering, redeeming, salvation, this process sometimes comes at greater trouble and distress. And you have to go through it in order to be redeemed or else you stay where you are and you wallow in your pit. C.S. Lewis gave this example. The offer of salvation is very much like a parent who comes to the child and the child is playing in his little mud pit. And the parent says, I want to take you to the beach. But the child says, no, 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 no. I don't want the trouble of getting out of my current fun in my little mud pit in the house because it's too troublesome to get changed, to get dressed up, to basically go on a long drive to go to the beach. I'm quite happy as I am now, even as it is. In chapter 6, verse 7, it says, I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Now, why am I repeating this? In chapter 3, at the burning bush, God had already told Moses, this is what I want you to do. Moses again said, no, I am a man of unclean lips. I cannot do this. It's too much trouble. He unwillingly, nonetheless, does it. But after doing this, goes through trouble, greater distress. And he kind of repeats himself that it is hard now I want to make this second point that there is more than 400 years that have passed between the covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in Exodus chapter 6 right Moses tells sorry God tells Moses, I'm going to fulfill the promise that I gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, this promise is 400 years ago. In fact, if you look at Exodus chapter 12, verse 4, it is 430 years. Now, can you imagine a deferred gratification that is 430 years in the making? we kind of tell our children, okay, wait, wait, wait. Your reward comes. But if you're one of these slave families that has tried to be living faithfully to Yahweh, and your parents have died under bondage, and you have been born into bondage, and your children are into bondage, and your children's children are going to be stuck in this bondage, and you remind them the promises of God, and it has taken these many generations until finally... Yahweh says to Moses, Now I will show. How will you teach your children that the promises of God may not occur within this lifetime, but will occur in eternity? That's a tough question. Because what the world wants to teach you and distract you with and give you enough trouble is to realize the truth that Eternity is a lot longer than right here, right now. We want our thing right here, right now, and God is promising us the rest of eternity. How will you teach your children that? After Moses has reported all this, in verse 9, to the Israelites, they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and their harsh labour i feel like moses at times i'm trying to tell people look at the long-term picture but what everyone can see is my lifetime my children's lifetime or my children and children's lifetime our life is a small blip in the rest of eternity and god's timeline is not our timeline god's way of doing it is definitely not our way and Moses is typical like us. If I, I tried. God, I tried. I tried to do what you asked me to do. doesn't seem to be working. Very easy to give up. On hindsight, we look at Moses and we realize he succeeded in taking out one million people out of Egypt, out of the most powerful army in the known ancient Near East. And he was very dejected. He was very troubled. He was very distressed. And he kept telling himself, I cannot do this. I cannot do this. And he was right. He could not. You actually find in verse 12, God says, I will now show you what I am going to do. God gives a plan that has no relevance to their current situation. In this whole intervening period from from Exodus chapter 6 to Exodus 12, 10 plagues have occurred. Nothing in all of these plagues did the Israelites do. Let me put this again. Nothing in all of these 10 plagues did the Israelites do. All Moses did was appear before Pharaoh and say, Thus says the Lord... (laughs) And first comes the blake of blood, you know, flies, gnats, lice, death for the animals, progressively getting worse and worse and worse. And each of those plagues was a condemnation against the gods of Egypt. The last one being darkness. And finally, coming to this one, in chapter 12. The process of deliverance in the Passover involved a perfect, innocent lamb now, why do I say innocent? Uh, innocent is a form of not so much free of sin, but free of defect. Okay, so the instruction that was given to them, find a one-year-old lamb. Without defect, male. Slaughter this lamb at twilight. Take his blood, wipe it on the mantles, on the three parts, top, left, right. You know, if I, if I do this, right, imagine I'm at the door, top, left, right. <laughs> That's kind of like a picture of a cross at the door. Use it to mark the door frames and it's roasted meat eaten with bitter herbs and unleavened bread in a state of readiness. Now, I don't know how many of you, when you read the scriptures, you enter into it and you imagine yourself there. Can you imagine a child, right? Uh, The parent comes and says, okay, we're going to do this. After we've experienced all the ten plagues, now God is telling us, we're going to take this lamb. One-year-old lamb. Anyone ever seen what a one-year-old lamb looks like? I had the opportunity when I went to an orang asli kampong. uh, But I don't want to show it because it's too cute after you like, why are you going to kill that lamb? <laughs> they take the lamb and they have to actually do something to the lamb. Here's a picture of what a one-year-old lamb would look like. It's very common huh, when I go to the kampung that not only the children, but the adults would carry the lamb, hold it, stroke it. Okay, for so for those of you who have never encountered a one-year-old lamb, maybe next time you follow me into mission trip, you get to meet the lambs. <laughs> Very cute. Some of them, they come in into the, uh, into the room, uh, the, the uh, bamboo stilt room. And they sleep together with them. you imagine the amount of affection that they have for these lambs? They're like cute little playthings. So you tell your family, One-year-old lamb is going to die. The blood is going to be spattered on the thing. And you might think, wow, what a cruel God. Cute little thing is going to die. For what? Because he's going to do this awesome magic trick. We have this uh, kind of famous painting that you have seen that depicts Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. In Leviticus, the whole purpose of the sacrificial system was to show people the consequence of their sin, that innocent people would die, would have to pay for their sin, that the things that we hold dear in life would basically die. Death was meant to be a stark reminder to us about the consequence of sin. And so when we look at jesus this innocent perfect human male who died we would know we caused that that is the cost of our salvation that is the cost of our redemption but the process of getting to that point is really distressing and troubling at times it takes a lot of hard work and it may not happen within your lifetime you know, one of the things that is most depressing when I speak to our mission guys, uh, I said, you are trying to transform the kampung. It will take at least three generations before they even begin to trust you. I've seen it. I've been doing this for the last 15, 20 years. And I'm into generation three. Only now they are beginning to say, "Yeah, Pastor, bagus kita hantar anak kita pergi tadika. Only now. can you imagine the child having to basically surrender this little lamb that the lamb would be killed its blood put on the doorpost the Egyptians looking on will be laughing at these people saying these people are weird but they are doing something that is a pre-shadowing of something that would happen in order to save not just the people of Israel but all of mankind and mankind had nothing to do with it all of this god would do now i want to highlight to you the people of egypt were sorry the people of israel in egypt were saved is it before or after the ten commandments some of you scratching your head trying to remember your sunday school lessons The people of Israel were in bondage and saved. Was it before or after the Ten Commandments? It was before. And that denotes to us God's grace. While we were still in bondage, while we were yet sinners, God sent His act of salvation that the innocent would die in order to save the sinful or those lost in bondage so let me point out to you from the time moses did this until the time jesus comes thousand five hundred years a prophecy that is given and a reenactment or a foreshadowing of what will eventually happen 1500 years later you might look at this and say wow so long But God desires that all be saved. What does that mean for us when we teach our children and our children's children what faithfulness means? What the scale of eternity means? How will we live this? We have today in our celebration of communion the bread and the wine. We know that Jesus, when he was crucified, was crucified very much like the lambs. At twilight, when the lambs were being slaughtered for the Passover, or killed for the Passover, Jesus was crucified. Jesus was male. Jesus was innocent, without sin, without blemish. And he came as an atonement for us. Before He left, He set with us this new covenant, no longer the Passover, but a realisation of what the Passover was pointing to, the Lamb of God that was slain for the sins of the world. We eat the bread, and in some of the liturgy we say, the body of Christ given to you. Take and eat this in remembrance of Christ Jesus. The blood of Christ shed out on the cross. The blood of the lambs put on the doorpost that God would see it as a covering over our sins. What does it mean for us when we celebrate communion? When we teach our children what it means? All throughout New Testament scripture, we see Christ as that perfect lamb that was sacrificed over Passover. and That is that process of redemption. But Jesus reminds us, in this world, you will have trouble. But take courage, I have overcome this world. What does it mean to teach our children that in all the trouble that you face, even if it means that we never achieve what God has already set out to do, God has already overcome. How will you apply this? And I don't really have all the answers because each and every one of your lives are different. How do you teach ourselves and our children to be faithful beyond our own lifetimes, especially in the light of the greater trouble and distress that deliverance involves? You know, for my dad, it meant after many years, finally sitting down with him and having the honesty to talk and say, dad why did you do all these things and i gain a greater appreciation of how difficult it was to do justice to love mercy and walk humbly before god but are you actually living that life as an example for your children that when you take decisions to not give bribes when you take decisions to do what is right it sometimes means a costly uh, cost to you Because if it doesn't cost you anything, then what is the worth of your worship? It is leftover surplus. You don't need it anyway. And so worship, in a way, is very costly. It costs you everything, in a way. How will you live your life to teach your children that you live not for now, but for eternity, even beyond my lifetime and another person's lifetime? How will you talk to them about this? What symbolisms do you apply to Holy Communion and its celebration together as a family? Our Methodist churches made a decision not that long ago to say that children will be given communion. We practice it as pedo communion. As long as they are living in the way of the Lord and for purposes of order, we say get them baptized. But you realize. That the household, the whole family in Egypt, all of them would have received this meat. All. Not just the family, all in that household, as long as they wanted to. And so we do the same as a reminder to them that this is God's act of grace over us. So, parents, when you go back, if your children ask you, What was Pastor talking about, Passover? this passover is a reminder of god's grace to us that he provided his son that by his words it becomes bread to us by his life he becomes salvation to us his blood poured out for us what traditions and symbols are you using to remind your generations that come after you of god's faithfulness it can be christmas it can be easter it can be anything this is a tradition that I have in my own family Um, we spend a huge amount of time in the car sending the kids to school picking them up bringing them back sending them to all these different places so being in the car captive audience Uh, every day when I send my children to school we say a prayer as I'm dropping them off every week and when we find time especially if we have time at night, every night ask how the day went and we ask what is God saying in all these things we have family time together we talk about difficult things and I have to share with them how has God been faithful to me because my children might grow up and say why do I have to be like you you know why can't I be like other families everybody else stays put pastors family move here move there move everywhere we live in a house that is not ours We live in circumstances where last time we could afford this, that, everything. Now we have to check budget. (laughs) And we live within boundaries and constraints. And I have to paint them the bigger picture, (laughs) the eternal picture, not their daily life. And I thank God that they have grown up okay so far. (laughs) but we have to teach our children and our children's children to look beyond their current circumstances. How will you, my dear brothers, apply this in your life? You need to teach your children these symbols. They are symbols and traditions that remind us of a truth that is eternal rather than temporary. I pray that God inspires you how to do this. Let us pray.